You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Our focus today will be on verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading 11.27 through 12.9. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Tether fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were still in the, were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us for all the time whenever we do read your holy word and we read about such events that we think them far from us. I pray you give us grace to see in Christ as children of Abraham the significance of these promises and that they would propel us forward in a faith demonstrated by as radical an obedience as we see here. In the strong name of Jesus I pray, amen. 
To grasp the significance of the text we're taking up this morning, consider the narrative pace of Genesis up to this point. Read through the genealogies of Genesis 4 and 5, 10 and 11, and you'll see that generation after generation zips by with little, most of the time, no comment at all. Things slow down with Noah for a bit, but then the pace picks right back up. You are flying through human history at warp speed, barely able to grasp anything that has happened. And now the narrative crawls. Not a tedious crawl, but a focused crawl, a, a crawl of interest. A, 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 you're now at just a, a, a pace where you can actually take in something that has happened. The book of generation is structured around 10, these are the generations of passages. The most recent one, the one we're under right now, begins with verse 27 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Terah. And unlike the previous generations that you read of in Genesis, where your attention is drawn to some descendant long down the line, this generation concerns, focuses on one immediate descendant. And so from 1127 to 25 and verse 11, your focus is on Abraham. This generation, unlike the previous one, draws our attention to one descendant in particular, and he is the focus for a good chunk of this book. Just consider that in passive. How many persons have been dealt with with the comment, he was, begat, he was begotten by so-and-so, and he died. And now we're drawn into Abraham. And so you can see why Alan Ross would comment. The exposition of Genesis 12, 1 through 9 must articulate its importance in Genesis and the Bible. It is the central passage of the book, the foundation of the Abrahamic promises, and the beginning of the nation of Israel as a worshiping community. Or another scholar narrows our focus even further, just commenting on verses 1 through 3. He writes, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is clearly a pivotal text in so, so far as the book of Genesis is concerned, heralding yet another new stage in God's dealings with humanity. It is set against the backdrop of the primeval prologue in general and the battle incident in particular. These three verses fix the agenda, not only for the patriarchal narratives, but also for the rest of the Pentateuch and beyond. Therefore, this divine speech to Abraham is one of the most important revelations in the whole of Scripture. Indeed, it has been well described as the Bible's Magna Carta. Here we find a synopsis of the divine agenda in which God's rescue plan for humanity is revealed. The necessity of such a rescue mission has been underlined repeatedly in the preceding chapters in which the escalating spread of sin and judgment has been traced from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel. But here in Genesis 12, God's redemptive plan is at last revealed. It's been hinted at in the previous chapters, but here it is disclosed most fully. As the Apostle Paul puts it, here God announces the gospel in advance to Abraham. So our attention should be arrested as we take up these scriptures 
the scripture because God clearly focused his attention here on these events, these things, this person. As we look to verses 1 through 3, we see one command. There are a few who would argue that there are two. One command and five blessings. Some will say there's six. I've put a couple together. But everyone would agree that the substance of God's speech to Abraham here consists of commands and blessings. But what about covenant? Where is covenant? And to see covenant here, consider two things. One, recall the covenants God made with Adam and Noah. Adam, go, multiply, fill the earth. Noah, the same thing is repeated in here. Abraham is told to go. But there is a difference. There is to be multiplication, but this time God says he will multiply Abraham and make of him a nation. Okay, so there's a similar shape to those previous covenants, but then the really big one is this. This is the first of three key passages teasing out the Abrahamic covenant. And you go to the following ones, Genesis uh, 15, 1 through 20. We see a covenant ceremony there. 15, 18 says God made a covenant with Abraham. And you go to chapter 17, and there you see the covenant sign given, spoken of as such. And in both of these, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the same promises that you see here, the very same promises are extended in those instances covenantally. They're the very same promises that are given to uh, Jacob and, uh, and to Isaac. The same promises in covenantal form made with them. All of this is covenantal. This is a covenantal command. These are covenantal blessings. All of God's commands, all of God's blessings are covenantal. It's not a question of whether or not they are covenantal. The question is, is a covenant actually being made and established in this instance? Or is it reflecting back on a previous covenant that already has been made and established? That's the question. So God is making a covenant with Abraham. He makes it progressively over a series of episodes, but nonetheless, the initiative happens right here in chapter 12. And it happens with this command, go. And going involves a to, and it involves a from. Go from all that you know. Verse 1, your kindred, your father's house, your country, your kindred, your father's house. And go to that which he doesn't know. A land that I will show you. And while Genesis 35, 31, 53 does indicate that Abram's family, broadly considered, Abram's family came to know Yahweh and worship him. That wasn't always the case. There was a point at which they didn't. And what we're looking at in this episode is a calling that comes upon Abram while he's in Haran. Verse 32 of chapter 11, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then when we look at chapter 12 and verse 4, we see that he departed from Haran. This call comes upon Abraham while he's in Haran. And this becomes the family home. They settle there, we're told in chapter 11. But prior to that, they were in Ur of the Chaldees. 
chapter 15 and verse 7, God makes that plain. Acts chapter 7, 2 through 3, Stephen's speech there speaks of them residing in Ur. And so prior to this point, prior to the initial calling of God upon Abram, wherein his father goes with him to the land, towards the land of Canaan, prior to all of that, they are in Ur, and they were pagans. Joshua's speech that he delivers to Israel at Shechem, remember that, you'll want, to re- you'll want to recall that later on, but that powerful speech that he delivers to Israel at Shechem, he says, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Joshua 24, 2-4. So, he was in Ur. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. God calls him. And his father comes to worship Yahweh along with him. They make their way towards Canaan, but they settle in Haran. We have no comment on the legitimacy of any of that, but we do know that God calls Abram again at this point and says, go. It was a call that he'd already received. Go. And in one way, this call is much more radical than... It's easy to critique Abraham. He settled in Haran. You should have gone all the way. It's easy to critique. This call is much more radical than you or I could ever experience. We move much further distances at times from family. Yes, you're able to stay connected so easily. There's not even a postal service that could make this more easy. We also can move greater distances and yet remain in the same cultural atmosphere, so many things familiar, so many things uh, that we're accustomed to would still be there, even if we move overseas in many instances, with, with modernization, with, with Western influence uh, having spread around the world, there would be so many things that were familiar to you. Abram will never see his extended family again. He will sojourn in a foreign land among a people not his own. But in another way, this call is exactly the kind of radical call that is demanded of each of us by God. Going involves a from and a to. You're to go from and you're to go to. You're to forsake all and follow with absolute allegiance. You are to repent, turn from, and you are to believe, turn to. Turn from your false idols, turn towards the true Christ. You may remain in your homeland. You may keep fellowship with your family, but this supreme and absolute allegiance is demanded of every child of God. Our Lord says to us all, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the calling of God. That's on all, all the children of Abraham. Now, why would Abraham forsake all and follow in faith to a land that he's promised to be shown? Well, obedience is costly, but it's too costly not to obey. Yes, we need to forsake this world, but what's promised here to Abram and promised to us is a new world. Yes, we may have to leave family, but we're promised a family, a spiritual family. We may have to leave country, but we're promised a heavenly country. We turn from curse to blessing. We turn to let go of the forbidden fruit and partake of the tree of life. That's what's extended here. I'm sure that folks asked Abram, why, why did you do this? And he no doubt could have responded just as David Livingston and Hudson Taylor did. I never made a sacrifice. There was no loss here. There was gain. But there is a turning from and a turning to. And if you think, you think the cost is too great, turn your idolatrous eyes from the from and turn them to the to and you'll see there's no loss at all. It's all gain. And so let's look at the gain. Let's look at the promises. One command, five promises. The first promise made to Abram is, I will make of you a great nation, verse 2. Abram is called to leave his country, but he's promised that he'll be made into a nation. God doesn't say he'll make Abram a people. He says he will make him a nation. The two are not the same. Most nations are comprised of a large number of peoples. Abram will become not only a people, he'll become peoples, but one of those people in particular will also be a nation. Territory and governance are assumed in this. So Abram is going to a land not simply to become a people, He's going to a land to be a people with a land, to become a nation, and not just any nation, but a great nation. And then the second promise is, verse 2 again, I will bless you and make your name great. I put those together. The blessing is why his name is great. His name is great because he's blessed. These two, I think you'll see as we, we proceed here, that they're intricately related. In Genesis, we've seen man cursed in the garden. We've seen it again at the flood. We've seen it at Babel. But now our attention is arrested on one man in particular who God singles out to bless. There's been a lot of human history unfold since the flood but it's only interrupted narratively by one episode in between here and there there are tons of human history but there's only one episode narratively that interrupts it and that is Babel 
There men gathered, and he purposed. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse, be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God brings that to nothing, and now he seemingly takes the nothing of Abraham. And he promises to make him a great nation and give him a great name. And he isolates and confines him to a place where he will multiply him. It seems the inverse of everything that's happened at Babel. Victor Hamilton comments, The builder's aggressiveness is matched by Abram's passiveness. If his name is ever to become great, it will not be because of any self-initiated effort. The great name will be a gift not an achievement. What does it mean to have a great name? Well, yeah, of course it's going to involve fame and renown. But I think many are right to see this as royal language. Great name, royal language. Abram himself is called a prince in chapter 26, chapter 23 and verse 6. Kings and princes are promised to come forth from him, chapter 17 and verse 6. But I think this promise is really looking a much further forward. If Abram's to be a nation that involves not only land as territory, it involves governance, and thus there must be a ruler. And so begin to reflect backwards. Where's the first instance where we might see uh, someone who has a great name? I think it's Nimrod. Chapter 15, uh, chapter 10, excuse me, of Genesis 8 and 9. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. It's not saying that there weren't any weightlifters before Nimrod. He was the first. He had, he had a name. He was the first to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. I think the idea really is a mighty warrior there because it goes on to say this. The beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So this man, who had a great name, was a king. And then consider, in the Davidic covenant, God says to David, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Like one of the rulers, one of the, one of the persons who are known, who has a great name. I will make your name great like them. In that long live the king psalm, that's Psalm 72 written by Solomon. In that psalm we read, may his name, and it's not speaking about Yahweh, it's speaking about the name of God's king. And it says, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Isn't it peculiar that that psalm, in speaking of the king and his fame and renown, goes in exactly the same direction as our text in speaking of Abram's name being made great and the impact that's meant to have on the rest of the world. Same direction in both texts. What God does in blessing Abram 
is making his name great. These two are coupled together. Make your name great and bless you so that they both have this purpose. You will be a blessing. Abraham is blessed and he has a great name so that he will be a blessing. To borrow language from John Piper, Abram is to be a conduit of blessing, not a cul-de-sac of blessing. God blesses Abram, making his name great so that he's a blessing. And the third, fourth, and fifth blessings tease out how that's so. So the second blessing has a purpose. I'll make your name great and bless you so that you will be a blessing. And then the third, fourth, and fifth blessings that we're going to examine tell us how Abram is a blessing. Third promise, I'll bless those who bless you. Fourth, inversely, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Verse 3. All of creation now is related to God in how they relate to Abram. How you relate to God is determined by how you relate to Abram. That's how pivotal these verses are. Abram, instead of being cursed, man might be blessed. He is not the singular seed of the woman, but you can see now something concerning the seed is directly related to Abram, and it's no big question how. You understand that from Abram will come the one who will crush the serpent's head. All humanity is divided up by how they relate to Abram. There's the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And now we understand that the seed of the woman are also the children of Abraham. Jesus warned the Pharisees, saying, Matthew 3, 9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. You begin to see there, it's not a question simply of physical lineage. On another occasion, you remember the Jews protested, Abraham is our father! To which Jesus rebutted, You are of your father, the devil. The seed of the woman are the children of Abraham. And those seed are not physical as we've already seen with Cain and Abel. We'll see with the children, you see it with the children of, of Noah. It's not about physical descent. And so in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham is the father of us all. And by that he explains all who believe. Fifth, teasing out the scope of those who are to be blessed, God promises, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is to leave his country that he might become a nation that through him all the nations might be blessed. Those families that are dispersed because of their arrogance at Babel are to be gathered back together. All nations in Abraham blessed and in that Paul tells us that true gospel was preached to Abram in advance Galatians 3 7 through 9 know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you all the na- shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Can you see why we can't exaggerate the significance of these three verses? Why they're critical and pivotal, not just to the book of Genesis, but to the scriptures in whole. Abraham is not just a pristine example of faith. He is the father of those who have faith in the very same promises that are ours in Christ and supersized and come to their fullness and glory. What's the result of God's call and command on Abraham? Verse 4, he obeys, he goes, he goes just as Yahweh had told him. This is how faith manifests itself. Obedience. Your obedience is not faith. But true faith demonstrates itself, manifests itself as obedience. Abram obeys the command because he believes the promises. His belief in these promises works itself out as obedience to this command. The author of Hebrews unpacks this writing. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. For, why did he do this? Why did he by faith obey and do these things? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews eleven eight through 10 This solves the conundrum that so many who has not felt the tension when you read through James and you wonder how does that square with Paul? You read James chapter 2. It talks about faith without works is dead. That's because it's not the faith of Abraham. It's not true faith. It's not that those works justify you. It's that that kind of faith that doesn't demonstrated in self of works is nothing. It's dead. It's of no effect. It's not true faith. John Calvin explains the connection, writing, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith, which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. The call, the command, the promises of God here, the speaking of God, brings forth in Abraham by God's work, faith, And that faith brings forth works. And anything other than that is not the kind of faith 
that is of God that we see throughout the Scripture. If your faith doesn't go, it's not the faith of Abraham. It's not faith at all. It's a dead faith that promises nothing, that has no part in these promises. Abram goes, and Moses takes care to tell us with whom he went and where he went. He went with Lot. He went with his possessions. He went with, and part of that being the people were told that they had acquired in Haran, his slaves. He went with them. And what's the significance of this? Why tell us in detail who he went with? Well, if you're reading in light of these promises, in light of what's happened, you would think, well, Lot is the natural heir of Abram. But that soon proves not to be the case as they part. And so if Lot is no longer the heir, it's right after that Lot and Abram have parted that we find God come to Abram and speak again of his covenant and his promises. And Abram laments that Eliezer of Damascus is his heir. You see the significance? Lot is gone, and now Abram is coming before uh, God, lamenting in light of these promises made afresh. One of my servants, all the people that they had gathered in Haran, one of my servants is now my heir. Sarai's wife, 11 and verse 30, is described as barren. And you're told of everyone he went with Alongside of your understanding, he's 75 years old. Now, it's true, as you're reading through Genesis, you'll see men bearing children much older, but as you, prior to this point, but as you survey Shem's genealogy in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, as you look through those names, you see things change significantly after the flood. It's true that Terah was 70 years old. He's the oldest by double out of all those other names. He was 70 years old whenever he fathered children. But Abram's older than even he was at this point now. Terah's the oldest and Abram's beyond him. And the average age for entering into fatherhood from Shem's line as you have it there is in your early 30s. Abram's double that. God does not pick fertile ground in which to plant his seed of salvation. He has plans to tell a story much more glorious than that. And then look at these three places that are mentioned in verses 6 through 9. First, Abram comes to Shechem. In particular, the oak at Morah. Where God had prior spoke of showing Abram a land, now he says, I will give you this land. And thus Abram responds by building this altar. Later we come to see that Shechem is located in that mountain pass between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. You may remember Deuteronomy 11, that's where the blessings and curses of the covenant were pronounced whenever Israel comes into Canaan. This is also where Joshua gave his famous charge to the people of Israel. And you're told that he set up a memorial stone. 
So Abram's built an altar, stone altar, under a tree. Joshua sets up this memorial stone. You're told Joshua 24, 26, that it was under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. In the near future, this is where Jacob will come to first whenever he returns from Padanaran, from Haran. Whenever he comes back with his wives, wives and his children and he buys a plot here and he builds an altar in the same place. And we're told that before he departs from Shechem, he tells his family to gather all their idols and Genesis 35, 4, he hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Second, Abram journeys to pitch his tent between Bethel and Ai, verse 8. And this time, instead of Yahweh speaking to Abram, Abram calls upon the name of Yahweh, and again he builds an altar. Jacob, after he leaves Shechem, immediately goes to sojourn as he was instructed by God in Genesis 35:1 to Bethel. And it's there that God appeared to him and changed his name to Israel and said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abram, Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Third, Abram goes towards the, to journey in the Negev. This is what will be... Um, later known uh, southern Judea what, what's later known as southern Judea that wilderness area to the south of it that's, that's what the Negev is whenever Jacob left Bethel Ai that area whenever he left he also goes towards the Negev so whenever Jacob returns from Padanaram with his wives and children he returns tracing the exact same route as Abram did on entering Canaan. And whenever Israel comes in in their conquest of the land, they follow the exact same route in reverse order. It's as though the patriarchs were scouting out the land hundreds of years in advance, marking the territory that was to be theirs. The physical descendants of Abram, in particular Jacob, the Israel that he became, partook of these promises, but they partook of them only in a, in a shadowy and limited kind of way. In Christ, in the new covenant, saints, these are ours in all of their fullness. Saints, you who believe in Abram, uh, believe in Christ, are children of Abraham, and thus you are, as Peter puts it, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and you are blessed to be a blessing. That, that the name of Christ might be exalted in all the earth. You are heirs of a heavenly country. You are heirs to creation made new. 
And so hear all these blessed promises and realize that they're not less yours, they are more yours in Christ. And so how much more should you obey and follow your Lord in light of all the fullness of blessing that God is holding out to you in Christ? Where do we find our Lord's covenant commands? In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in all of Scripture. But in the New Covenant in particular, it is worth noting one command that really resonates with the same sense of what we see here in the Abrahamic Covenant. Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go multiply. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go. Multiply. Make disciples baptizing and teaching them. And the impetus that should propel us forward in obedience to this great commission are that great declaration, all authority in heaven and earth on earth has been given to me. And the great promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. In light of all of God's covenant promises. May ours be the faith of Abraham. True faith. Living faith. That will go. And that will make disciples. Wanting to see them incorporated into his body and fellowship. Baptizing them. In the name of our triune God. And wanting to see them grow in holiness and faith. Obeying all things whatsoever he's commanded. Lord, may it be so. May ours be the faith of Abraham. And we plead. We pray if there's any here. That you hear the promises of God. That you would realize. That they are extended out. In Christ crucified for sinners. Risen triumphant over death. Exalted as rightful Lord worthy of all your allegiance. That you would, you would see all those promises held forth in Christ. Knowing that if you would believe. He will save. And all this would be yours. 
And so part of our obedience to this command, we would love to speak with you if you sense the truth of those things and speak to you about the state of your soul. Saints, may we leave earnest to do so everywhere we go. Go. And our real hope, though, is this. We want to be fruitful. Be faithful. Hopeful to be fruitful. But as it was God who said, I will make of you a great nation. As it was a miraculous work of God to bring forth his people from Abram. It will be a miraculous work of God as we go forward. But we know we can do so because the gospel is the power of God unto unto salvation. And in the same way that it brought forth faith in Abraham, it brought forth faith in us. And it will bring forth faith in his elect that he means to gather. And ours is just a blessed privilege to participate in that mighty work of God in gathering his people from all the nations. May it be so. Go. Make disciples. Multiply. Let's pray. Father, this this blessed covenantal command and all of its blessings are not far from us at all. They are so new as we hear them, near as we hear them in the word of Christ. So new and full, full of more as we hear them in Christ. And Father, so then, May our faith be full of more by your blessing on our little faithfulness. Not that we would presume to be more than Abram, but that we would be faithful and that we would be fruitful and seeing the fullness of all you've promised in Christ. See it work out. See it manifest both in ourselves and our faith and in your gathering your people from all the nations. For the glory and renown and name of Christ we plead this, and in his name we plead it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.